Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fuds and Film. I'm Drew, and I'm joined tonight by Scott. Hello! No one would have believed in the first years of the 21st century that these films were being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. That is, people busied themselves staying in their houses doing absolutely bloody nothing. Uh, They were scrutinised and studied. Perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise a transient creature that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Or maybe virus particles. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs. But, you know, virtually and vicariously via YouTube and Netflix, bored to tears and no longer serene in their assurance of their empire of a matter, listening to podcasts to fill in the time. That may be a hint about the topic of this um, episode, although, honestly, the title of this episode will probably have keyed you in well before then. Uh, the genesis of this episode came from a desire to visit some classics of science fiction, and in fact, first produced our 70 science fiction episode from August 2019, as that decade in particular seemed to be particularly rich in interesting material. And we encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already done so, or indeed to listen again. We won't even charge you. <laughs> this episode will cover a considerably longer period, from the 1920s to the 1960s, and handily also serves as our other topic idea of literary science fiction. Though, to be fair, most science fiction cinema seems to have been based on written fiction, whether in short or long form, with but one exception, though if you squint at that, you can sort of maybe, and maybe squint again, say it's based on a 400-year-old play, so we'll take it. (laughs) The best science fiction, so not, for example, modern Star Trek TV series, is about stuff, so especially not Star Trek Discovery, using its imagined worlds, technologies and situations to explore contemporary hopes, fears and societal angst, and to look at the human condition, generally much more so than any other genre of fiction. So, our selection of films, which takes us from pre-World War II Europe, through the dawn of the nuclear age and into the era of the Cold War, ought to provide plenty of scope for such reflection and commentary, while hopefully also providing entertainment. We will begin, though, in France, where both cinema and arguably science fiction began, by looking at Le Voyage dans la Lune, or A Trip to the Moon, if you're going to insist on English translations in this English-language podcast. (laughs) The seminal short film by Georges Méliès, based on, amongst other things, Jules Verne's 1865 novel From the Earth to the Moon. There's not a lot to say about it, I suppose. It is only about 15 minutes long, But it would be remiss of us not to bring it up in a discussion on classic science fiction films, and it should absolutely be seen, if for nothing other than historical interest. A story of a group of astronomers who travel to the moon, escape from some lunar inhabitants and then return to Earth with a captive, is a brilliant example of the inventiveness of the earliest days of cinema, which was then a brand new art form. Meliès was a genius, and his special effects and editing techniques were groundbreaking in their time, but it also in opposition to much of his contemporaries, put an emphasis on narrative, which coupled with high production value, again, for its time, (laughs) and unusual length, for its time, helped to change the direction of cinema. There's also a meta-story, with its unauthorised release by other studios, particularly in the US, pirating, I believe that's called, (laughs) oh the irony, from which he saw not a penny, leading to the diminution of his career. 
Melius himself wasn't forgotten, with the likes of Martin Scorsese's Hugo and the final episode of From the Earth to the Moon paying tribute to him, and his grave in Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris still being visited by pilgrims, including yours truly, full of the resting places of so many great artists, engineers, writers and politicians, Melies's tomb was the thing I desired to see most. And few filmmakers have created any single scene quite so iconic as the rocket landing in the eye of the man in the moon. And now that I've talked for probably longer than running time of the entire film, I'll let Scott speak. Yes, but I don't know if I've got all that much else to say <laughs> about uh, uh, Voice to the Moon, other than it's it's nice to see it. It's certainly a lot better than the previous state of the art, which I believe was train coming into the screen. Uh, uh. <laughs> Probably terrifying. Like. Yeah, uh, but yes, yeah, uh, just echoing everything you say. There's an interest, uh, a vital stepping point in sort of the evolution of film as an art form into something that could actually tell a story rather than just show you a train. And um, yes, on, on that regard, must be, be applauded. And yeah, special effects obviously very primitive at the time, but yeah, it still work. Um, and there's something about the fact that you're just using practical effects because, well, that's all you've got. Yes, <laughs> and that still actually gives a, a degree of physicality that makes it somewhat. Convenient. Convincing in, in certain regards. Um, yes, it's, it's not going to convince anyone that we actually went to the moon. Um, but yes, it's a fun little wheeze of a tale, a nice little fairy story, and it's a very interesting thing to watch indeed uh, from uh, this time 118 years, 19, coming up for 119 years, yeah. yes. So, yes, well worth watching, and it certainly is not going to take up very much of your time to do so. So, do it, do it. No, um, yeah, it's one of those things you've to, you should see. Right? You can't, there isn't a lot to talk about because it's not. Um, it's fifty minutes long, um, yeah. and I, I'm struck with just like how remarkable the rate of progress was in early cinema. Because 1902, people are commending Le Voyage dans la Lune to for like its uncommon length, <laughs> and like then you get to Birth of a Nation, which generally prefer not to talk about, but like only 14 years later. Which is more than three hours long. Yes, <laughs> that's a, a, a rather fast rate of progress. Um, I think you must agree. Absolutely. And uh, uh, what's remarkable to thought others uh, at the beginning of the restoration is a bit of information about how it was lost. It was discovered again in a film repository in Catalonia, and how it was restored and things like. And they mentioned like that it was all hand coloured. Mm-hmm. Which I think maybe a lot of people don't know. Like you see old black and white shorts, but when they were originally projected, uh, they were coloured, like mm. kind of fairly crudely, because you can't spend a lot of time, like you know, trying to get out of the flesh looking accurate. Or but they weren't shown in black and white; they were shown in colour. But the colouring was all done by hand in post production, and yeah, it's only fifteen minutes long, and it only runs at fourteen frames per second. Yeah, uh, but. That's 13,345 or something frames individually hand-coloured. Yeah. That's (laughs) mind-boggling and impossibly tedious, I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, uh, we can't talk about classic science fiction without talking about that because, you know, it's it's a starting place for so much that was to come. Yeah. And just before we move on to our next film, Scott, I wanted to ask, how many of these films had you seen before? Because that's generally one of the things we're looking to do is to find new stuff and of these i had only previously seen one i think i'm about the same I'd, i think i'd only seen one of these maybe two i thought i'd seen 
too, but I'm, I'm not convinced having rewatched it again. Or if I did see it, I'd pretty much forgotten everything that happened. <laughs> so yes, not that many. Of them. That doesn't matter, I suppose. That's more just my curiosity. But uh, so we're largely coming to these fresh then. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're going to um, begin with again. Maybe it isn't surprising for the the aforementioned Birth of a Nation, but with our longest film, which is the two-and-a-half-hour Metropolis, uh, apparently originally shown as more than three-and-a-half hours in its first screening. Um, mm. Fritz Lang was maybe a bit self-indulgent, but the very, <laughs> very famous Metropolis and an influential Metropolis, Scott. Yes, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart, says Fritz Lang's Metropolis. So if we learn nothing else from this film, it's simply do not let Fritz Lang set up any arbitration tribunals. His 1927 <laughs> film is now commonly held up as a masterpiece of the Silent Age, although it was rather less warmly received on its initial release. And I suppose we should recognise, before getting too far into deciding which viewpoint is correct, we're not judging the complete work, at least as Lang intended, the film being cut substantially after the initial premiere, with parts of that still lost to time, even with valiant modern restor- uh, restoration processes from the odd long-buried reel that show up from time to time. Anyway, looking at what's available to us, we're introduced to Gustav Froelich as Frieder, the indeterminately aged but young son of Alfred Abel's John Friederson, the apparent creator and ruler of a vast metropolis, boom, title Rob. Here, the wealthy live in carefree luxury with the 0.1% such as Frieder, living in an apparently entirely insulated, cosseted life in the Eden-esque pleasure gardens, while hordes of nameless workers toil and die at the underground edifice of the pitiless machines that run the place. Pitiless and puzzling in function and design, it must be said but I suppose that's the expressionism speaking. He's shaken back to reality by the sudden intrusion into paradise by a bunch of child poors, shepherded by Bridget Helms Maria, <laughs> a saintly figure we'll later find to be held as a prophet of sorts by the oppressed working classes. They're quickly banished back to the underdeaths alongside the rest of their kind, but not before Freder has fallen in love with her and perhaps also her message that they're all brothers, even the girls. Maybe that's also the expression I'm speaking, I don't know. Freder resolves to ask his father about what the deal is with all this mass oppression and all, and before long is heading off there himself to find Maria and fully see the horrors of the underground underclass, shadowed by his father's spy, Fritz Rasps the Thin Man. And seeing that things could soon be coming off the rails, Papa Frederson enlists the help of his long-term frenemy and inventor, Rudolf Kleinrog, as Rotwang. He has been working on a secret project, the iconic band machine of images, uh, no doubt you have seen from this uh, film. Uh, and as the Titles would have it, it's the man machine, although I see Rotwang's giving him tits. Expressionism, <laughs> probably. Anyway, uh, this machine can take the form of anyone, so Federson wants to create a robotic doppelganger of Maria with the intent of ruining her reputation and dampening down talk of a working class revolution. But it turns out Rotwang is holding on to more of a grudge than he lets on and seeks instead to tear it all down and watch the world burn. Young Fader therefore finds himself slap bang in the middle of these machinations and must find a way to save Maria and the city from destruction. Now, there's been a lot of analysis done over the years of Metropolis, and if you are the sort of person who gets off on that sort of thing, more power to you. Myself, I think I'm on Team H.G. Wells, who I'm led to believe knew a thing or two about science fiction, in thinking that this is silly. <laughs> Perhaps the crucial moments of meaning are those that have been lost, but I cannot find a particularly coherent message in Metropolis that's evident in the text in front of me. For example, I'm surprised to see here that it was criticised for having a communist message and let me just run this through my Marxalyzer. Um, results coming in now. Uh, it just says, this ain't it, chief. <laughs> uh, likewise, in common with a few of these films, actually, there's a faint, uh, a more religious message in there, except it doesn't really say anything about much about it, other than that religion exists in this context, which kind of seems like a preemptive attempt to avoid being cancelled by zealots, Copernicus style, rather than having a point as such. 
although cancelled by Zealots is a good name for an indie album. So, to cut my withering short, I am not on board with this as a masterpiece of messaging, but there's more than enough to appreciate in other aspects of the film. In particular, the imagination and execution of the world building and the visuals is really rather impressive now, let alone for the time, and is more than worth the price of admission by itself. The performances, well, there's always a fair amount of playing to the back seats with this era, so I'll go along with it, even when it's unarguably gone into way too silly territory. Evil Maria and the dance club seduction scene, I am looking directly at you. Um, <laughs> At least, uh, unlike some other landmark films we've covered that make me feel like I'm on crazy pills because they're obviously awful, there's at least a lot in here that I can see why people would latch onto and want to talk about it, even if I disagree that the messaging or the metaphors are clear enough to support it. And that's alongside stuff that I did appreciate. So I'm glad I've watched it, and I certainly recommend anyone with a passing interest in the history of cinema, not just science fiction, should watch it. But I will probably never come back to this. And maybe that's the most expressionist thing of them all. It's not. That doesn't make any sense. I just didn't have a good way to wrap up this review. <laughs> and I still don't. Drew? Yes. Um, curious that you mentioned that people have thought I had a communist message, given that it was meant to have inspired in some way Nazi Germany. And mm-hmm. Adolf Hitler uh, applauded the, the world that it um, displayed. So I think sometimes people just bring in what they want to see to these things when yeah. they say things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's... To be honest... The reason for doing this episode at all was to, for a reason to watch Metropolis. It's one of those films I've been aware of for a very long time. It's It's been referenced in one way or another in so many things, even yeah. like the radio Gaga music video by Queen. It's, like, it's everywhere. And I, it's like seen so many bits and pieces of it. I'd never actually sat down and watched the film, mm-hmm. which I have now, and I'm very glad I did. Uh, just... On a side note, though, this I watched. I don't know if you watched the same version, Scott. There are multiple. I watched the the most recent Blu-ray, I believe, which is with um, as much restored as it's been able to be for a while. Um, after they found the sixteen millimeter print in Argentina, yeah, I believe that's what I watched. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that a long thought to be missing German things should turn up in Argentina. Mm. Funny that. <laughs> um, I think, like you, I struggle to see any particular message or meaning in it um i mean i could take a stab at a few but i don't know if i'm just trying really hard to find one yeah like, like there's a lot or, of things i could graft onto this but i'd be doing an awful lot of the legwork myself rather than just yes. you know, what's in the text which is what i was trying to get out there um let's see if, if you want to use this as a basis for any number of things i'm uh, you know, more power to your elbow the, the general you not you in particular um but yeah I, I i just don't think it's actually supported by the text in this instance no, I don't. And I think if, if the thing is basically an expressionist masterpiece. Like, it's not really kind of about morality or other themes like that. If it's an expressionist thing to begin with, like, that's all pretty nebulous as a starting point. Yeah. However, I, I am now glad that I've seen it. I had reservations for for much the same reason that you suggested, Scobbs. Like, I've seen other things that other people consider masterpieces, and I've thought they're quite genuinely awful. Yeah. Um, so. There was always that slight concern going into this. Uh, I thought I was captivated by it because part of it is I'm looking for meanings and trying to understand what they meant by any given thing. But whether I would get a great deal out of a second viewing or not, I'm not sure. But this first one, even with its relatively long runtime, which is, and that's a lot of time without dialogue yeah. to watch a film. I was not bored for even a second because there was so much to take in. I was appreciating the incredible set design and... Yeah. Then, like, the weird thing that, like, a couple of the major characters 
I've decided to like, you know, be sensible and realise that in a visual medium, people can read your face and know what you're doing. Um, in particular, Joe Federson and um, Joseph Fat are for the most part acting like normal people would act. Yes. And then Freder and Rotvang in particular are... <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> yes, they are very yes. <laughs> uh, Maybe the sets are so large because they were chewing so much of it, they had to have sufficient left to film with. But, uh, <laughs> Certain attrition rate of it, yeah. So you kind of can't take your eyes off of that stuff, though, and it's fascinating. Uh, and on that same tack, um, it's weird. The, the woman who played Maria... 1920s German Evan Rachel Wood. Yes. Um, like when she's Maria, she's actually kind of closer to Rotvang and Freder, um, Joe jo Federson rather, um, in like not overacting. Mm. When she's Hell, yes. the robot, oh, she's like, she's given as good as she gets for against Rotvang and Freder for chewing the scenery. Oh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, it's just fascinating. It's so interesting. Um, so I said, there's not a moment of I was bored by because I'm taking in the sets and like the costumes and uh, listening to the really interesting music and I wonder why bits of it are playing because even the, the soundtrack is really interesting. The the restored version I watched has the was there meant to be the original soundtrack I believe in it, uh, and there's lots of bits like uh, sections of the 1812 Overture by Tchaikovsky playing there, and like I'm watching thinking. Okay, that that's not accidental. Not just because they like the sound of it. What's what they're trying to say with that? And well, like I'm not sure there are that many themes in it beyond the, the really obvious stuff like Moloch, which is about it's like an ancient god or practice of child sacrifice and stuff. That's a bit kind of more on the nose. Mm-hmm. But my, my mind's working constantly. And I'm like, like, right, what are they trying to say by this? Maybe there isn't anything in, but I was thinking about it. I was wondering what they were going for, what statements were being made. So my mind was active through all of it. So I wasn't bored for a second. This is a really, really interesting film. And also the restoration is beautiful. The bits that aren't the damaged 16mm print from Argentina, that's just kind of filling in blanks. Yeah, Really, really nice transfer. It, it's so clear, and I don't believe that projection ability was so poor in the 1920s that you would have needed these people overacting so much. Like, yeah. uh, why they were doing it with other people in the same film were like, no, no, we'll, we'll just have like normal faces like people do. <laughs> uh, I just found it a really fascinating film. There's so much going on there. There's, um, you mentioned the communist thing, and I, I did I think actually that there's a couple points in there. I thought maybe they're making comments with the 1812 Overture, which is... Um, written for the defeat of Napoleon's forces in the Russian Empire, like a like hundred years before mm. the Communist Revolution and stuff like that. There, there's maybe something there and like the name of the foreman being, of the one of the workers being Georgi, which is like, doesn't, I think that was a German version of that. I thought that was like Georg or Jörg, so it felt Slavic, but again, maybe I'm reading too much into it. <laughs> uh, but I was having a lot of fun doing it. I've entirely lost my train of thought now. <laughs> um, I, I had more cohesive thoughts. Uh, I just—it's it, definitely something I would recommend seeing. It's really interesting, and you can see why it's in many ways so influential. It's—it's it's very ambitious in its scale. Yeah, yeah, and definitely author-led in, in a way that you don't see these days. I mean, you, you'll never see a Marvel equivalent of this film. Nothing so as individual or uh, so driven by that kind of vision, and the way this looks is uh, just so different from everything that I've. 
everything I, everything I've seen at least in the in the, the era of science fiction, it is certainly worth watching for sure. Yes, uh, I would counsel you perhaps not to read anything about the production of it though, because um, I don't think Fritz Lang was a particularly nice person. No. <laughs> given he had, you know, 500 incredibly poor children working in, like, knee-deep freezing cold water for two weeks and stuff. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I have the, the suspicion that he may be one of those rather arrogant people that thinks that it's suffering is worth it for his art, especially if it's other people suffering. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who could have predicted that a German of this era would be so easy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but yeah. Very much um, something to to look into. A very interesting film. I'm pleased it's one of those classics that hasn't disappointed me. Indeed, indeed. Uh, shall we move on then to things to come? Yes, let's. Um, while Beyond Le Voyage dans la Lune, we're not covering any adaptations of the works of Jules Verne in this episode, you best believe I will be forcing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea into our inevitable submarine episode, though, where it will clearly sit extremely comfortably alongside Das Boat. Um, we are, by chance, covering two adaptations of the works of that other great Victorian science fiction writer, H.G. Wells, who has also been bestowed with the title of The Father of Science Fiction. The first is 1936's Things to Come, based on Wells' 1933 novel The Shape of Things to Come, Directed by William Cameron Menzies and starring Raymond Massey, Edward Chapman, Ralph Richardson and Margaretta Scott, Things to Come begins in 1940 in every town, a city in southern England. It's London. It's clearly London. It's London. Imagination here was preserved for other things in the film. (laughs) Where a population lives in fear of an imminent war in Europe. You recall I mentioned the whole contemporary angst and fear thing earlier? The war inevitably comes, lasting through until the 1960s, where the origins of the war have been forgotten, and it is now fought because it's the war. And that's what you do with the war. You fight it. This war is finally ended by the enemy deploying a biological weapon which propagates a disease called the Wandering Sickness, which more or less turns people into what we would today call zombies. Rather um, predating George Romero here. Yeah. The result of this is that entirely half of the world population dies and government vanishes. All that is left are little fiefdoms, including every town, which is now ruled by Ralph Richardson's boss, who took power by proposing the shooting of the infected humans to save the rest. As he tries to have his small fleet of antiquated aircraft made airworthy again, so that he can defeat the neighbouring hill people and steal their colliery, a new modern aircraft lands in the city containing a former inhabitant of every town, Raymond Massey's John Cabal, now a representative of a brotherhood of airmen calling themselves Wings Over the World. Despairing of the attitudes of the boss and those like him, every town is picked as a place to deploy the new peace gas, after which human progress proceeds apace for the next century, resulting in the species living peaceably in underground cities with artificial suns. While the inhabitants of future Everdown prepare to launch a manned probe to the moon by means of a giant supergun, something particularly amusing given the headquarters of Wings of the World having been given as Basra in Iraq, now we know where Saddam got the idea, (laughs) several among the population begin to rebel, considering it unnecessary, progress for progress's sake, and wishing to rest from it. As with many other British films from the first half of the 20th century, 
things to come is rendered somewhat difficult to enjoy by the almost comically absurd overabundance of received pronunciation throughout. US films of the time have a similar issue with the mid-Atlantic accent, though I tend to find that less grating, with the occasional working class accent typically being some tossing core blimey governor in a 100% convincing manner. (laughs) Get past that though, and there's some interesting stuff in here about individualism versus species, the potential fragility of our societies and institutions, and, for me anyway, as it's raised but not addressed by the film, the morality of forcibly applied peacefulness. All of that is in an unevenly paced vehicle, however, which suffers from a lack of clarity in what anyone is doing or why, something exacerbated by a dearth of interesting characters. It is, however, interesting to see the idea of civilization collapsing into barbarism in a film of this time, something I find all too believable, unlike Graham Greene, who reviewed it at the time, and a pre-Star Trek ideal future that I share Greene's opinion of as being rather naive, though, as with Gene Rodbury's creation, I appreciate the optimism of. Scott, I, I realise I didn't um, conclude my notes in any particularly useful manner there, so yes. Scott, that's, that's my conclusion. Yes, um, interesting, this film. I suppose I liked it overall. Um, it's, it is it is a bit patchy. Um, I think I've just come to used to hearing posh people uh, pretending to be... Uh, <laughs> Pretending not to be posh and oh, I'm used completely to it. Like it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's never convincing at any point. But yes, it, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting film, um, particularly given the kind of worrying precognizance that um, HG Wells shown with with a lot of this. Um, it, it is really not all that far away from what could well have happened. Obviously, obviously, the war was definitely on the horizon at the time this would have been written and, and produced and that would have been fairly obvious but um, the way that a lot of it kind of goes is is worrying um, mm-hmm. the, the way the, the whole kind of bombing things is first off an incredibly well done bit of um, composite and, and special effects work for the actual devastation of war that I thought was done really well for the time yeah and, for 1936 I was impressed by that yes and, and actually better than a couple of films we'll get to um, that were much later and should have had much better technology available to them um, so it, it does a lot of good good work early on in creating that kind of you know Fallout-esque um, as in terms of the video game sort of uh, kind of atmosphere for, for that bit um, it wasn't it, just me then <laughs> yes uh, it, it lost me a little bit um, towards the end. As, as it gets further into the future, it kind of gets less anchored from anything that could be kind of seen as a sensible uh, reality. Um, and I think it's, it's maybe a it's actually maybe a criticism I might have had of Metropolis as well. It's like, a, a, have you decided to evolve beyond the need for any kind of police force? In this kind of one, it's, it's a bit strange as how the, the kind of future um, society has, has come to be. Uh, it is obviously going for that kind of idyllic thing, and then Luddites appearing from pretty much nowhere, saying we must stop this now. You know, a lot of that doesn't really sit particularly well, but that's probably just the fact of the matter that it doesn't have all that much of the film's runtime to do it. Obviously, it's trying to cover what is it, uh, hundred years, something like that. Um, Mm-hmm. near enough of of history so yes parts of that are going to suffer <laughs> and uh, yeah a lot of the kind of world building of the, the far future is kind of not all that well explained like why are you building underground cities when there doesn't seem to be any particular need to can you just clear the above ground if the, if the technology rather than dig down there's no evidence that this is um, any sort of 
you know, poison gases rendered the world useless or anything like that. Um, yeah, so there's a few, th- there's a few kind of quibbles you could have with it, um, but you can't really fault it for terms of it having a kind of wide-ranging vision, and that's perhaps what I enjoyed about it most. And yeah, there's a lot of things I did pick up in there and I liked it. Um, yeah, I think overall I, I quite like this. Yeah, it, it's got a lot to recommend to it, and I, I quite enjoyed my time with it. Um, again, perhaps one I'll, I'll never go back to see. It's maybe not the most uh, necessary of the ones we'll speak about in this, if you want to get a kind of complete history of uh, science, early science fiction, but it's pretty good. quite enjoyed it. Can't yeah, say much more um, than that. I did quite like the ambition of some of the sets, particularly like the the future of every town, um, and mm-hmm. their, their giant television screen, projection screen or something that fell... Yeah quite futuristic yeah. uh, so there were bits and pieces in there and certainly what I was struck with in particular was the, that it felt prescient and when I went to find out when it was written the original book was written in 1933 which is actually much later than I thought H.G. Wells was still writing so, yeah. so uh, it's in the, you know, the gathering storm in 1930s Europe and written in the year when Hitler came to power so you know it's some of it's perhaps not a surprise, but it, it just, some of it just feels so very like what actually happened in World War II. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. And I was, I was thinking to the 1936 is when the Spanish Civil War was going on and the Luftwaffe were um, involved in a lot of the bombing. So I wonder how much of that played in there. Yeah. That it's, it's not just guesswork anymore. It's yeah. like they know how important aviation is going to be. But, you know, it still uh, gets quite a lot of it pretty close to yeah. a lot of things that actually happened and. Uh, it's yes, it's really quite interesting. It's all a bit disjointed, and yeah. I really do think it suffers for lack of interesting characters. Yeah, in, in particular, John Cabal, who's kind of the, the guy kind of tying all this together, and his you know, and his progeny <laughs> as it goes on later on. Yeah, yeah. He, he's just not that much of an interesting character. He's a bit of a blank slate, which I suppose is fine. But yeah, and also the kind of morality of the whole wings over uh, the world is a bit. Grey. It's all a bit totalitarian, really. And yeah, that's the same, like enforced yeah. peacefulness. It's like that's that's not really on. Yes, <laughs> uh, you're taking away free will and stuff, and it's like kind of. If anything, that's a frustration for me that the film didn't explore that at all. Yeah, uh, it, it's just the way that it's presented in this kind of, uh, well, I suppose maybe technocracy you might imagine is that, although it's not, again, another thing that is just not all that well explained because there's not enough time to explain it in. And uh, yeah, that, the, the way that's presented is just obviously a moral good, I think, could be opened up for a bit more questioning. Um, if you wanted to, if this was being remade, that would be a, an issue that I think would be a, a bit more delved into. But yeah, what you got to do? Yeah. Um, and also just to your point about Fallout, that was very much on my mind too and actually, the wings of the world, it kind of made me think of a bit of the Brotherhood of Steel, but it's sort exactly, of the opposite yeah. Yeah. they're kind of, they're gathering the technology to give it to people rather than to keep it from people yeah. um, but <laughs> it had that kind of feel about it yeah, yeah, but it's definitely, it's not it's not fantastic, but it's interesting and the fact that it was made when it was I think is perhaps the most interesting thing of all yeah, but so we're going from a film made in the rather frightened, I suppose, years of the a few years before the beginning of World War II, a lot of tension in Europe. But jumping from there to one of the first films made after one nation exploded an atomic weapon on top of another one. Uh, and that was quite scary. It is indeed. And yes, and this is, of course, the day the Earth stood still and a Klaatu Baradu Niktu to you too. So... 
here the earth is, right, post-World War Two, swagging around going, ooh, look at us, we've harnessed the power <laughs> of the atom to melt people, aren't we king poops of Exermont Mountain, and generally just settling in for a good old-fashioned Cold War when, out of nowhere, well, out of space I suppose, a flying saucer lands in a park in Washington DC. The alien flying the thing gets out, saying he comes in peace and goodwill, and because it's America, he gets shot for it. Said alien... <laughs> Said alien, Michael Rennie's Klaatu, does manage to call off his robot Gort's rampage of melting down every puny earthling weapon around and is taken off to hospital. Healing quickly, thanks to his own advanced medicine, he wants to be taken to Earth's leaders in order to deliver an urgent, highly important message. However, politicians being politicians, neither a guest list nor location can be agreed for this, and Klaatu insists this must be delivered to all of them simultaneously. Deciding then, somewhat out of nowhere, that he must live amongst these humans to better understand them, he slips his guards and takes up residence in a boarding house, befriending Patricia Neal's Helen Benson and her son, Billy Gray's Bobby. He makes contact with Sam Jaff's Professor Jacob Bernhardt in an attempt to reach the great scientists of the world to deliver his message and is prompted to make a demonstration of his power. This takes the form of stopping all but essential power in the world, bringing the Earth to a standstill, so it's not just a clever title then. This is certainly head-turning, but not completely unreasonably is seen as a touch too threatening for the authorities who turn their manhunt into more of a preferably dead-than-alive sort of thing. But, as it turns out, that message is very much stop killing each other or our intergalactic robot peacekeeping core will bring you the peace of the grave, so good job on that one, Earthlings. It's hard, uh, at least for me apparently, to recap this film without it coming over a bit trite, but I should point out that I quite enjoyed the day there stood still. Um, it is not perfect. I don't know how an alien should react exactly, but it's probably not like an impatient army officer or a kindly uncle, which seem to be the two poles that Michael Rennie <laughs> bounces between, and it's perhaps best not to speculate on the finer details of what little is revealed about the aliens, as it's not all that coherent. It is, however, much more interesting as a cultural byproduct of the dawning of the atomic age, and while well likes of Godzilla and them, Born quite soon, where arguably trying to process the practical effects of the power of the atom bomb, the day they are to still stands more as an intergalactic extension of the nightmare of the mundanely phrased mutually assured destruction, but with cool robots, which makes it better. Uh, it's dated, naturally, although I'd argue that, like things to come, this is rather less reliant on then was these special effects than some of the other films of the year, or indeed this episode, and by spending most of its time holding a mirror to humanity, it does retain some relevance to this day. Short of a contemporary Cold War setting, it's perhaps a little harder to understand quite the context for it, but perhaps the unwanted refresher course from Trump's sabre-rattling brings it back to some relevance, so thanks for that. Maybe not quite essential viewing after 60 years, uh, but it's a pop culture milestone that's held up surprisingly well, and again, a worthwhile watch for anyone interested in the history of the genre. This was the only film on this list that is, I had already seen. This was this was yeah. the one. Uh, Likewise, yeah. And I was quite pleased to go back and watch this again and find that I still really like it. Mm. I didn't actually have the same issue you did with um, Klaatu's behaviour because I kind of appreciated the fact that he was just completely impatient with these idiot humans. Mm. Um, like, like you're going to kill yourselves and others. Stop it. Yes. <laughs> just going in all day that. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, I appreciate his impatience because he's kind of bewildered as to why they love war so much and like, do not understand that it's not in their best interest and stuff. And it's like, you know, what, where there's a problem is maybe because like, that's happening in like a day and a half. Yeah. Like, yeah. And like, that impatience maybe should have come out a bit of a, bit of a kind of expanded time frame. But that's a minor issue. It's really interesting. It's, I think it stands up more than a lot of other films because it doesn't have, it's barely got special effects. Yeah. Um, th there's very little there. There's a man in a, a silly suit. An awesome and, suit, you mean? 
Gort's cool. I like Gort. <laughs> oh, I like Gort, but I can't argue it's a silly suit. But um, I, I did quite like the effect of whatever kind of energy source was going on behind his visor, though. I was wondering how they did that. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of felt maybe yeah. projected, but I wasn't sure. Not like That was actually quite an interesting effect. Um, mm. But there's not a lot of special effects in here. Uh, mostly it's just people talking. And a, a lot of really good science fiction, really kind of thoughtful science fiction, doesn't actually require a lot of special effects or sets or anything. Yeah. It's really more about an idea, which is what this has got going on for. Uh, but even the interior of the spaceship, while some of kind of that clear plastic looked a bit kind of ropey now I was like very well like all that clear plastic was probably kind of really futuristic looking at the time and even now it doesn't look too daft um, yeah. whereas you look at uh, 1970s science fiction it's particularly bad for and actually I mean, kind of some late 60s stuff like Star Trek there were some Star Trek series where everything's got blinking lights yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and they look horrendously dated nowadays because what, what what's the function of these lights Lights mean future, do they? <laughs> yes. Okay. Whereas this hasn't been anything like that at all. It's got kind of a, a screen and some buttons and stuff, but like it's kind of restrained. And actually, I think it holds up much more better than stuff that's considerably newer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have a, a great deal more to add to that. I, I really like it. What I will say though is, while as a general, I, I much prefer well, any film posters that aren't modern ones because modern ones are all terrible. Mm. Um, and all basically the same poster, same like selection of half a dozen posters nowadays yeah. and have been for 20 years. But this film and the the next film, we're going, no, sorry, the two films, this and The Forbidden Planet, both have posters showing a robot holding a scantily clad woman, <laughs> which is not something that happens in the film at all. Yes. <laughs> why is that the poster? Well, I, I feel genuinely offended by that. I know why it's there. Well, I know why, but yeah, it's, it's not acceptable. Yes. Why is that acceptably a poster? Um, is it's got, at least in The Forbidden Planet, there is a scantily clad woman, but in the day of the episode still, there isn't. But the poster shows um, Gort laying waste to the world while carrying um, a woman in his arms. Like it, It's massively misleading. <laughs> so that is the only regard in which the 2000 remake is better than the original. <laughs> To be honest, I barely remember the 2008 remake, but I remember thinking it, it wasn't terrible. So that's about all I had going for it, because yeah. it had Jaden Smith in it, who is awful. <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember almost nothing about the remake. Um, so uh, fortunately, it hasn't sullied the original. Lato, but I do Nick, too, then. Shall we go on then to the War of the Worlds? I think we should, Scott. We return to H.G. Wells again, and an adaptation of perhaps the most famous science fiction novel of all time, The War of the Worlds, with a screenplay written by the pseudonymous, but presumably Thackeray-loving, Barry Lyndon, produced by George Powell, who directed another Wells adaptation, The Time Machine, in 1960, and directed by Byron Haskin. Chances are you're familiar with the broad strokes of this. Martians have been watching Earth for a while, and decided to drop by and take over the place by means of meteorite-like capsules fired across the solar system. Human weapons are useless against them. They devastate the planet until... Tiny, unconsidered bacteria defeat them where we, with our huge brains and technological might, were unable to. Microscopic organisms bringing a technologically advanced civilization to a grinding halt. <laughs> it's really pushing the bounds of credibility, that one. <laughs> 
As opposed to the Victorian Britain of the novel, the film updates the principal action to mid-20th century California, and the book's narrator is replaced as protagonist by Gene Barry's Dr Clayton Forrester, an atomic scientist, and, naturally, nuclear weapons are used against the invaders, albeit fruitlessly. The narrative arc is otherwise similar, just with everything absolutely rubbish in comparison. (laughs) Whereas the book dealt from the beginning with the horrific destructive power of the Martians and particularly the death of humans, this film version is oddly bloodless, with only a handful of deaths seen, and the bulk of destruction being at the expense of property as Los Angeles is destroyed. A particularly surprising thing given that this film carried an X certificate in the UK meaning at the time viewers must be 16 or older, not what X certificate ended up being. While not an intention of the filmmakers, I am personally very much considering this focus on property rather than life, an indictment of US capitalism and what it holds dear. (laughs) And that makes it another reason I find that I really don't care for this adaptation. Gone entirely is the harvesting of humans as fodder for the Martians, or the threat and death of the planet by the red weed and likewise conspicuous by its absence, is the novel's disdain for religion, and particularly the clergy, with the film instead promoting one priest to the role of a martyr, and, in a seeming effort to stick two fingers up to wells, ending in a church. It really is a terrible adaptation, with there are some Martians and bacteria one in the end, being most of what remains of the source. Evening the opening deviates unnecessarily from the book, while beginning with its famous opening passage, adding in some nonsense about the gas giant Jupiter having a rocky, inhospitable surface, and some other unnecessary explanations of why Earth was targeted, when it boils down to Mars is dying, Earth is closest. <laughs> a compressed time frame also does the film no favours. It seems that the events must take place over months, but it's actually three days nor does a leading man with all the charisma of a tree. (laughs) If there's any interest in the film, it's in the special effects which, while quaint now, quaint's the polite word I'll use, were impressive at the time. Though I wonder if the Martian shields, quite clearly bell jars of the miniatures, were equally obvious then as now. (laughs) And for the presence of the cliched line, how long was I out? (laughs) Delivered by Forrester as he returns to consciousness. I've long disliked that as a ridiculous thing for any human being to say, and only said either in films, or by someone repeatedly exposed to it by its use therein. And I was very surprised to hear it here, having assumed it's a much more modern plague. That really is it for interest though, as it's simply a really bad, very boring film, with the added kicker of being produced with the visually repugnant, super-saturated 1950s technical process that I am an avowed anti-fan of. (laughs) It has, however, given me a desire to revisit Steven Spielberg's 2005 adaptation, which I feel now I may have been too harsh on at the time. Yes, I too would like to go back and listen to that, if nothing else. I've got a pair of nice headphones now, and I'd like to hear some of the sound design, because it was awesome in that film. Um, the one true shining... Um, yeah, the sound of, of the... Yeah, the sound of the... Kind of... The, the, the right. thing called in Half-Life Striders, like, they're very like that, aren't yes. they? Um, yes, the, the tripods, you know, the critical yes. thing of the book, which this film doesn't have, because they all float for some reason. The, the, yeah, this version of The War of the Worlds, I, I don't want to say lazy, that's probably not there's obviously a lot of people worked very hard on it but it, it this whole thing felt like the first draft 
of everything. It's like the first the first draft of the script, the first draft of the concept art for it, the first draft of the special effect, uh, the creature design, all that, because it all just looked perfunctory, and all the performances look like the first take. Um, it, this feels like it is something that needs several layers of polish before it could actually be good. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I don't like in it, and almost nothing that I did like. Um, I, I, somehow, yes. somehow I didn't hate it, but yeah, I very much didn't like it, um, and I can't find anything positive to say about it. In particular, um, I'm glad you brought up that religion point because it's something that's kind of been going through a few of these films. They, they keep feeling the need to kind of link religion back into science for some reason. I don't know if this is just the way to get past selling it in America. I'm not sure what the point of it is because a lot of the time it makes no sense to add it into this. Same in um, Forbidden Planet that we get to next and it's shown up in, I think, all the other films we've spoken about so far, apart, apart, apart actually from the day they are stood still. It's added in to no benefit it's just wasting time in it film. It's very strange. Um, don't know if it's yeah, just a cultural thing. I assumed that had a lot to do with the kind of the very Puritan and Christian nature of like kind of mainstream America. Mm. It's, but it, it just feels particularly egregious that because Wells himself yeah. is a secularist and it's the curate in the book who's kind of one of the most feeble and despicable characters. Yes. Uh, so that they not just did they ignore that, but kind of like almost attack that in here mm. it's kind of offensive yeah yeah and to put the the finale in the church suggesting like god <laughs> saved yeah, them like, yeah. there was a i think when um uh the red what's up when the bacteria are seen to have killed the martians in the book yeah the narrator does say something about like you know kind of like the, basically the most they're killed brought low by the most humble creatures that god saw fit to put on the earth i mean yeah that's it doesn't feel legitimate uh, Victorian England it's uh, Victorian Britain it's very much like kind of what people would do but also it's kind of part of the language it doesn't yeah. kind of go against his more secularist take Yes, but this is like no there, there's some you, you directly paid to God and God saves you yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's offensive because it? it's, it's, there's nothing there in the the source material at all yeah um, and it it misses all the best bits of the book, which I think Spielberg at least gets into a bit. But yeah, all, all that harvesting, all the actual the horror of like the occupation and the, the earth being reduced to well, rubble, basically by everything. All that—that's all the good stuff. Um, well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> there's no horror in this, Scott. Yeah, like the the book begins like the the cylinder lance and on the common, uh, and then after a couple of second like couple of days, I think. It starts on screwing and the heat beam vaporizes people. It's like hundreds of people die within the first few um, yeah. chapters of the book. Whereas in this, there's three people who end up there alone and nobody knows what's happened to them. You just see their outline later. It's like, this film's supposed to be bloody because the book, sh- the book is bloody. The book is full of death yeah. because it's a real existential threat. But here, it's like, no, they killed some buildings. Think of the insurance losses. Yeah. Oh no, you've destroyed the instruments. Uh, oh, by the way, where's the woman I love? Oh, um, yeah, uh, yes, it's just not very good. Um, I don't know if we've got a whole lot more to say about it other than it's just it was a, it was very disappointing. This was the film that I I kind of thought I'd seen this, but I don't think I had. I could have sworn I'd seen the, the original War of the Bro- this adaptation of War of the Worlds, um, but I don't believe that I had. Otherwise, I'm sure I would remember that I didn't want to watch it again because um, yeah, it's it's just not very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, it's always the danger too of because we hadn't seen any of these films, like some films we knew of, 
I'll say we are. I largely put this list together in Scotland. That seems reasonable. But uh, <laughs> like things that are, I was aware of the reputation of like Metropolis and you wanted to watch. Some of them, though, are just put in by looking for lists of what people say are the best the best science fiction films of all time. Uh, the bulk of this list actually came from a list on Rotten Tomatoes, but that originated on a, some other website that doesn't exist now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the danger of like using other people's lists. I mean, we've fallen for a little bit before, but you know, there's so many films, how do you pick them? Yeah, This was quite high up on the list of like, considered a real classic of science fiction. And I was like, okay, I'll put this in. And it's, it's a genuine classic story. Yeah, so it probably is the most famous science fiction novel of all time. I struggle to think of anything that's better known than War of the Worlds. And I watched this, like, oh, this is absolute garbage. Yes. Oh, so, sorry, this is absolute garbage. garbage. Uh, yes. I learned my lesson now. Uh, it's it's trash. It's such a pure adaptation, and it's so strange that it's so bloodless. Like, it, where's uh, kind of accelerated time frame really doesn't help so, you know, it's, it's happened in a couple of days there's not really so, so much threat there yeah yeah it's it's just rubbish yes wells did it better <laughs> weirdly enough <laughs> so in the war of the worlds we charted the great scientific advance of color <laughs> next we're going to move into the even greater unknowns of widescreen scott yes uh, with Forbidden Planets, and if you're wondering what Forbidden Planet is about, well, there's this planet that is, yes, forbidden to you. <laughs> uh, namely Altair 4, where an exposition force was sent some 20 years prior and promptly vanished. Leslie Nielsen's commander, John J. Adams, and his crew have been sent to investigate. They find only one survivor of that outing, Walter Pigeon's Dr. Edward Morbius. And I don't want to be all judgy here, but with that name, that voice, and that beard, there may just be something a little more sinister to his story. (laughs) Just the guess. He tells them that some vague planetary force killed all of the crew one by one, leaving only Morbius, his wife, who later died of natural causes, and his young daughter, Anne Francis' Alta, whom many of the crew take a liking to. However, if they had any untoward thoughts, they would have to get past Robbie the Robot, an amazingly advanced automaton that outclasses anything seen on Earth, and that Morbius seemingly knocked out in his spare time, despite him being a linguist, not a robotics expert. Turns out he's been plugging himself into the remnant technology of a long-lost race called the Krell, which is the side effect of increasing his intellect. The still perfectly functioning technology is ridiculously advanced, but Morbius rejects the commander's suggestion that other scientists should also be studying this. Earth, he says, isn't ready for this jelly. Things things take a perhaps expected turn into disaster when the commander's ship is attacked by a powerful unseen entity, just as happened all those years ago. So, you have to work out what's going on and stop it before they're all killed, and also uncover the full extent of what happened to Morbius and his crewmates all those years ago. Right, let's get this out of the way, the standard issue early clear, Leslie Nielsen disclaimer, in that it's always quite difficult to take him seriously in straight roles, given his innate needlesicity and the, com- the comedic roles post airplane. He and the rest of the cast do well enough with all the dramatic reading that's required, and it's not their fault that I kept waiting for a punchline that never came. That's the Zucker Brothers' fault. Or mine, maybe. <laughs> um, 
But it's hard not to think of his space cadet Frank Drebin, right? <laughs> it is indeed. But what Forbidden Planet delivers, like a lot of the best science fiction, isn't necessarily action. There's a nice animated laser fight later on, but that's pretty much all the thrills and spills you get. Uh, but instead sets up a mystery, sets up some interesting characters, and has them bounce off each other for a while, until they kind of sort a twist of the ending that's maybe not standing up to a great deal of scientific scrutiny, but it does say something meaningful about the human condition. I'm not quite sure it qualifies for the same historical importance recommendation as most of the others we've spoken about, uh, but for what it's worth, it's one of the most easily enjoyable and digestible courses on today's menu. Yeah, but I don't think I've got a huge amount to say about it, but I watched it and I quite enjoyed it. It's uh, a bit of a... Uh, it, it, it is clearly something more belonging to the, the classic age of the sci-fi era than anything that's the, getting into something that would stand up to a lot of scrutiny today. I don't think you'd be seeing much in the way of remakes of Forbidden Planet, but yeah... For what it's worth, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, um, again, this is uh, another one of those ones that kind of got a like really big reputation. It's a mm. whole chain of comic books um, shops named after it. It's, yes, they well know Robbery Robots, particularly famous, but I'd never seen it. And I'm slightly considered to watch it for the reasons we spoke about earlier, and it's fine. Um, mm. I, I honestly can't um, give it any more praise than that. But I did enjoy. It. I thought it had some interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the same sort of irritations that films of any genre really does have for me, which is Leslie Nielsen lands on this planet. He's spent about 32 and a half minutes maybe with this woman and suddenly she loves him, is going to leave the home. She's the only home she's known for 21 years and has um, given herself body, I say body and soul to him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no. Just No. That's not how humans work. He's a dashing fellow, but he's not that dashing. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like that's there for plot convenience. Like yeah. this has happened in a day and a half. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> I mean even if you know, it's a slightly more generic. Um, oh, I'm suddenly seeing more humans. I would like to go with them and learn some more. Yeah, no, uh, which is really weird actually because the film builds up but then never pays off at all the idea that she's been told some really terrible things about humans yeah uh, because when she starts talking to I guess it's his exo but the first person that starts out the one that starts kind of basically abusing her by kissing her yeah when yeah. she's like she's an absolute naive but she says you are exceptional aren't you and there's a few things she says that she's clearly her father's told her like that humans are terrible things and they're really <laughs> bad and stuff like that. Never comes back to it. But it's kind of frustrating because like, at least you can see that like it would suggest that, you know, she realised her father was lying there or something, but that's kind of so glossed over. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. Well, it's quite convenient for the plot. And, and obviously, this is a mid-20th century American film. Well, obviously, the woman's obviously just going to go for the man because he's a man. <laughs> he's a manly man. And, and that's all that matters. And she will go make her home for him, for that is what the women do. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of stuff that bothers me in any film bothered me in this. Uh, but, I mean, it's it's really quite ambitious with its sets. It looks pretty good. Uh, there, Some of their science is actually kind of reasonable. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, within bounds of reason. But you know what I mean? It's like, uh, they, they kind of thought about it, about, like, They've actually, they have to spend months just decelerating from light speed, that sort of thing. You know, they've thought about it. Yeah. It's not just your simple shooty bang stuff, even though there is some kind of pew pew shooty bang in this, which is <laughs> generally not being prevalent in most of the other films, War, World War II effectively aside. Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's pretty. It's just it's not special. And um, I mean, I take your point, Scott, about the ending being kind of like suggesting making comments about kind of the darkness within humans and that sort of thing. But the ending, it just lost me. It's like uh, it started going on kind of down the Freudian track. You're like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> No, it does not interest me at all. No. What's killing all the people? Magical mind monsters, right? Okay, no. Bye-bye. Because <laughs> uh, it's got interesting ideas there, like, to about, like, a, a species, like, kind of being brought low by their own folly and their own hubris and stuff. And there are good things in there, and it's like, the, at the end of it just lost me completely. Yeah. No, no, no. Magic mind monsters, No. <laughs> But yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, again, I'm going to mention the poster. I hate the poster with a passion. Um, mm. I like the style of the poster. It's the content I don't like yeah. because Robbie the robot rescuing the maiden in distress, but she never was in distress and she wasn't rescued by it. It didn't happen. Why is this in the poster? <laughs> but um, it's certainly one of the, the ones in this I would suggest watching. Although I, I had heard for years that this is like considered a sort of loose adaptation of, of The Tempest. And I watched this like, no. And if you squint really, really hard and maybe pour Vaseline in your eyes as well, then <laughs> maybe it has similarities to Tempest, but not many. Yeah. Really not many. Uh, so um, yeah, I, I would set that, that aside. Um, I did quite like Robbie the Robot. I think he's a definite step up from Gort and uh, pretty well designed. And also yeah, just- well, the same is actually quite interesting. Um and it didn't, it was like, it was very clearly a man in a suit. Um, well, you know, this is a man in a suit, but the the design of it and the way, even just like where the legs disappeared into the body, I thought it was a really well designed, really well made as well. Yes, um, quite expensive from what I understand, but yes, worth every penny. And the uh, other thing I forgot to mention in my notes, uh, the soundtrack's pretty good. I like this um, weird collection of theremin noises and bleeps and bloops, and it's all it's all kind of got that kind of retro-futurist kind of vibe for it, which I'm, I like every again. I think it worked quite well for this film. I know you're not a fan of that kind of thing, but I am. So. Yeah, that's, I was going to mention that. I kind of forgot about that, actually. I was thinking more about the content of the film. Uh, the, the score was doing my head. <laughs> it, it really was. Um, I know... Star Wars in particular is credited as kind of really reviving the orchestral score, but if anything, it's it's probably 2001, uh, particularly in this genre. And, and I'm so glad because I don't think I could have taken another couple of decades of this bleepy, bloopy <laughs> nonsense. Uh, I mean, electronic music has its place and like electronic dance music and stuff, fine, but this kind of electronic stuff, no, it just it, it really grates in my nerves and I was not enjoying it at all. <laughs> just that, I was quite amused to find I, I'd never realised because I haven't not watched it before but I knew that there's a reference to well, it is Robbie the Robots in Gremlins when um, Billy's dad's going to the invention convention um, and he says I, I rarely use it myself so it promotes Rust I didn't realise that entire line not just the characters from this film so that was amusing yes. to me to find out um, I, it, it sounds like a reference to some sort of car maintenance product or something yeah. <laughs> um, that's what I assumed it was because of Gremlins but no that's, that line's directly from the film as well as the robot itself so that amused me um, yeah. but yeah that's, uh, it's probably like the earliest robot that I'm aware of in a film that like, actually has personality Yeah, uh, but it's meant Gort doesn't Gort's, I like Gort but Gort's not a character yeah but Gort's a walking that's, laser that's <laughs> yes um, but Robin the Robot's actually quite interesting and not kind of not in a goofy way 
Yeah. Uh, which you might think, I mean, there's no doubt that Metal Mickey from that 1980s sitcom is based on um, Robbie the Robot. There's more than a little similarity there. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a goofy character, as this isn't. Yeah. It's competent, actually. If anything, he's um, the straight man to the goofy um, chef guy that they've got on their ship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's even a wee touch of. I guess sarcasm, certainly weariness that they give to the robot at times, and I, I quite appreciate that. Yeah. Made this, I mean, because the robots are fairly um, new invention by then. When the original, that Czech story is the 20s, I think, isn't it? Where the, the word comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of automata existed before then, but still, it's it's not that common in film before then. And that's to bring him in as a fully formed character, not just a machine. Yes. Um, with, a, with a personality it's, it's, uh, almost the most well developed character in the whole film <laughs> <laughs> yeah at least his relationships with people are more believable than Leslie Nielsen's like, <laughs> woman has seen man in uniform woman falls for man like, it's a nice uh, uniform though so <laughs> shall we fly onwards then to Ikari XB1 indeed so we return here to the work of Stanislav Lem, the writer of Solaris, which we talked about in a 1970s science fiction episode uh, for our final film in the form of Yindrich Polak's Ikarie XB1, or Ikarie XB1, based on Lem's novel The Magellanic Cloud, a 1963 Czech film starring Zdenek Stepanek as Commander Abayev, Radovan Lukavsky as the unexpectedly named second-in-command McDonald, Dana Mejitska as sociologist Nina, and František Smulik as the mathematician Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> it's 2163, and the spaceship Ikaria XB-1 is leaving Earth on a mission to Alpha Centauri in the hopes of finding intelligent life in one of its orbiting planets. While travelling, the crew faces the stresses of prolonged confinement... Gee, I wonder what that would be like. (laughs) Separation from home and the knowledge that, due to time dilation, their loved ones will have aged 15 years by the time they return, while for them only 28 months will have passed, as well as a number of other stressors, including for one member the prospect of giving birth for the first time in deep space. After discovering a derelict 20th century spacecraft and pouring withering scorn on the people of the 20th century and their immoral weapons, the Carrier approaches Alpha Centauri and the crew identify a target, dubbed the White Planet, as being the likeliest candidate for life. Soon thereafter, though, the crew suddenly begin to experience strange and inexplicable symptoms of fatigue and tiredness. This is eventually traced back to a dark star, a body detectable only by its effect on other things, which is emitting a radiation that will be fatal if the Akavia doesn't get out of its range. Help from an unexpected source aids in this regard, but the secondary effects of the radiation on two crew members is more extreme, causing one of them to break and to put the ship and the lives of the crew at risk. I find that I'm struggling to say much about Akavia XP-1, in the most reductive terms, it's passengers on a long trip have some conversations. One of them goes a bit do-lally and threatens to kill them all. He doesn't. Oh, and there's a robot called Patrick. But I really enjoyed it. While it's in some ways smart and sombre, it's a thoughtful and contemplative film with interesting and believable characters and terrible, terrible dancing <laughs> and is far more sophisticated than most science fiction fear of its time. 
It's also visually striking, with its stark black and white photography looking simply beautiful. In the beginning, it's simply enjoyable to spend time with the crew. From the eager young man looking to press his luck with a new female crew member, to the slightly sulky older man who has dragged along his pet robot, and who won't do as he's told, damn it, and take his damn vitamin supplement, instead feeding it to the dog. (laughs) And the frustrated McDonald, whose daughter will be 15 by the time he meets her. That leads to being much more invested when danger approaches. And there's a feel to the piece not a million miles away from Star Trek. The good Star Trek, particularly the next generation. No place here for Michael f***ing Burnham. Not least the Ikaria's Enterprise D-like resemblance to a luxury cruise liner. Oh, and also in its utopianism. A Greek-derived word meaning a state where bloody Star Trek discovery never existed. Uh, (laughs) Not that you're bitter about it. (laughs) Not that I have strong feelings, Scott. No. Uh, It's an intelligent and engaging drama that I do not hesitate to recommend. Yes, a a very welcome surprise with this one because I hadn't heard of it at all before it popped up on this list and it's easily my favourite film of this episode. Mine too. Um, And sorry, Scott, just before you... This this came from the same list that War of the Worlds came from. (laughs) It's It's like swings and roundabouts, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I even looked up what it was um, when I get to this, so I was I was picking up very strong um, vibes of sort of the other uh, Stanislav Lem work that you mentioned, which has now gone out of my head already. Solaris, uh, Solaris, yeah, I was getting sort of fairly strong Solaris vibes towards the end of this, mm-hmm. and, and by extension, things that kind of aped Solaris, like Sunshine and these other kind of ones of the effects of a long voyage on on peoples and. <laughs> Unfortunately, it also brought flashbacks of passengers, which was awful. Um, but yes, this, <laughs> this is really quite good, and um, it felt incredibly modern um, in a way. I mean, it's only, what's this, uh, six years, was it after Forbidden Planet or something like that? Um, and um, whereas Forbidden Planet felt like something that is a million miles away from any science fiction film that was released today, a Carry XB1 would require almost no tweaks to the script to make it be a kind of modern science fiction outing you know extend bits of this split up and you've got a very competent netflix miniseries yeah and to uh, answer, not all that many tweaks to the sets or anything like that it's just, it, there's nothing no no so uh, apart from maybe a couple of miniatures which look like miniatures um and the yeah. the weird 1960s you can see of having swirling lights but it has yeah. to be everything beyond that it doesn't look hugely dated yeah um the, the science that's there seem kind of more or less holds up in a way that it certainly doesn't for the, some of the other stuff we've spoken about today it all kind of makes sense it's got mm-hmm. you know nice strong characters that you come to care about it's um it's even kind of edited in a way that's more modern with the kind of the setup and the flashbacks and all about well, and all that kind of stuff, the little kind of preview you get at the start of it and kind of going back into it. Lots of cool little things in there. Um, yes, it's just, a, it's just a very engaging story. There's lots of little details in here that you can kind of latch on into and kind of uh, really get invested with. Um, sure, in the kind of meta sense of the narrative, there's you know, maybe arguably not all that much happening, uh, but... Um, the stuff that is happening there is you know, really quite interesting. Um, lots of interesting little set pieces, little character details that makes it just a, a really engaging watch, and I enjoyed this heartily. Um, yeah, a very, very welcome surprise here. A shame, then, that a lot of Stanislav's Lem's other stuff tends not to get um, adapted, I think, 
Lem himself seems to have the kind of Alan Moore approach to anything that's adapted. He <laughs> just hates mm. everything he's done by <laughs> just on a matter of principle. But uh, yeah, um, I, I would really like to see, and I suppose I could just read more of his work, but even then, I think a lot of it's not been translated. But yeah, really interesting stuff that's going on here. And just, uh, it just felt like a. It felt closer to a documentary uh, for this kind of thing than it did feeling to the kind of like classic science fiction of the kind of like swashbuckling era. Um, this felt very modern in comparison, and yes, I enjoyed this greatly. Yeah, it did feel not just because it's the latest filmed chronologically, but it did feel the most modern. Hmm. I didn't think about it much while I was watching, but after I'd watched, I was preparing my review for it. I, I did like it. Did strike me as so much more. I mean, not in every way, of course, but it did really feel like a Star Trekky sort of thing. Absolutely, like, yeah. like the yeah. the good TNG episodes where the crew would have a problem and they would talk to each other, yeah, and they would work it out. You know, not Star Trek Discovery, yeah. Not that that's a bugbear of mine, <laughs> uh, and certainly not Star Trek. So, sort of like good Picard, not Star Trek Picard, yeah. uh, where like they would they would talk and solve a problem and they would do it intellectually and things even slightly less kind of nonsense um, science fiction in this it's kind of like there's more kind of sciencey science fiction in this yeah. uh, um, and it's but in many ways it just felt like much more modern as you say you could update this quite easily and it wouldn't feel dated at all without having to make very many changes whatsoever mm-hmm. I wouldn't say a surprise because I, I went to this with no expectations at all Yeah, particularly because by the time I watched this I had seen the War of the Worlds that I said coming from that same list, um, and like I'd hated that. Uh, so yeah. I, um, I'll just uh, try and keep myself entirely. So this is a really, really interesting film, really entertaining, and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend this. However, if you're listening to this and are intrigued by this, please, whatever you do, if you want to watch Ikari XP1, get the recently restored Czech version the original version because uh, this was released in the 1960s in the United States and was on television for many years thereafter um, known as Voice to the End of the Universe which is um, let's put it as politely as I can butchered (laughs) with 10 minutes cut out uh, messing about with the characters and a stunt ending which basically turns the ending of it into the, the Planet of the Apes so you know whoever's responsible for that can do one uh, but chances are they have done it's, it's the 1960s they're probably dead now so that's good <laughs> and if that sounds harsh good uh, uh yeah it's just just be careful because there are there's, there's a particularly terrible version of this um that has been destroyed and the good version from like the actual original the original creator as how as it was meant to be oh just um also, a caveat XP1 significant for. Do you remember those LA gear trainers that light that lit up when you stood in them? That uh, were all the rage in the <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. late nineties, early two thousands, I think. Um, yeah, apparently they came from this film because yes. they're in there. Yes. The kind of magnetic boots thing that show yes, that by, light up every time they stand down. Yeah. <laughs> that really amused me. <laughs> Who just thought that's where they came from? <laughs> relatively obscure um soviet era czech film there we go <laughs> I, I don't know if you looked into this i forgot to because i kind of ran out of time 
I would love to know the derivation of the name of the fatal nerve gas that was used to kill the crew of the 20th century space gas that's discovered. Tigger fun. That's a bit weird. Yes, yes, it is. It's very strange. <laughs> I, I had no handle on that at all. It's described, at least in the subtitles, as Tigger fun, a.k.a. Tiger's Breath, that was used to and had on board Hanley for some reason to kill the crew of the 20th century spacecraft to discover because they've run out of oxygen or they, they had run out of oxygen Tigger fun is yeah. this a Disney reference? Um, yes is I, it bouncy 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 fun 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 genocide yes um, <laughs> no um, I've, I've no uh, knowledge or indeed apparently has Google on a quick look um it, it, yeah, it does not make a lick of sense to me. No, it's just a strange, yeah, it, strange combination of things. Yes. Yeah, it's like um, fatal toxic gas of some description called Tigger Fun. Okay, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, and the only time I, the, the obvious Tigger um, is the one from Winnie the Pooh. So what? That yeah, strange. Um, answers on a postcard, please. The wonderful thing about Tiger is murder and genocide. <laughs> yes, very peculiar, isn't it? <laughs> right, uh, that will wrap us up for today. Thank you very much for your attention. If you would like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then please do so. Uh, we're on email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com. We're on the old Twitters there at fudsonfilm and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. Uh, yes, so until next time, I shall bid you adieu. I'm sure that Drew will do too. Fare thee well. <laughs>